Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Catholic Stuff You Should Know. Welcome to the podcast, What's Father up? John. What's up, folks? Father Nathan. Good to be together again. And yep. uh, round two, but we have shifted. The day has passed, and we're now moving to St. Lupulin. Pray for us. St. Lupulin is... Extra pale ale. I have missed good craft beer in the United States. I bet you and have. it is good to be back. Odell Brewing Company, thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful gift. We are restocked. Mm. Well, it's great to be back in Colorado. You know... Moving from Italy back to the United States has been a bit of a culture shock because uh, it took me about a year to realize that um, I'm just not on this weird long study abroad program, but I actually live in Italy and I have lived there for two years and now I'm coming back. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I came back to the United States and I landed in Dallas, Fort Worth airport and I was like, everything is clean, is efficient mm-hmm. and is huge. I was like, everything is just gigantic. Driving down our highways here, I'm like, oh my gosh. Everything in the United States is just like so massive. Yep. And I'm continually shocked that like everything works. Like the fact that your Wi-Fi in this house works oh. consistently. There you go. Unbelievable. That's not normal? That's not normal. Okay. That's not normal. There's just certain things in Italy just kind of, bleh, just doesn't really work. And then everything is, eh, queste è impossibile. Everything is impossible, you know, when you try and push these things. And so... I'm grateful to have the uh, American experience back, which includes this good American beer. Express. American Express, yep. So, yeah, it's good. It's good to be back. And uh, I'm mooching off of the incredible hospitality of uh, Father <coughs> Nathan. He ha- He's running a uh, kind of a, this is like a hostel. It is a hostel. Shelter for battered priests. I the, think. Other day, <laughs> the other day, we had every single room filled, including the basement room. Um, and then <clears throat> a guy left. That day, I changed the sheets over. The other guy left, and then we had two other priests in the in those rooms yeah. again. Yeah, this is the so. Gobel Gobel Hütte. But I have to be honest. So today, I was signing checks, and uh, I'm just you know do 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 this check, this check, whatever. Finally, get to the check. Father Daniel Usterman. Okay, thirteen hundred dollars, and I said, "Excuse me," and it had been uh, they had. They had said, well, you know, he's priest help. He's, he's helping as a priest, you know. So anytime you have a priest come in and assist, you know, you pay him for confessions or mass, you know, mass coverage, you know, their mileage, etc. Um, and weekend masses are, I mean, like, y- you can, I mean, you got to pay for that. Right. And uh, so he had, I think it was four weekend masses and three, like five confessions and then three whatever and then uh, some reimbursements whatever so not all of it was whatever and i just go uh he's drinking my booze (laughs) and dirtying my towels okay that's his supply help right you know stipend whatever which he's totally fine with so father john is not going to get he's not going to get you know a a cut a check because he assists me at daily mass or whatever yeah i'm shocked to hear that i'd like to be paid for you know doing nothing around here except (laughs) reading books and uh yeah mooching off of everything well i mean you you still have to pay you still have to pay the the offering the stipend you know because people pay people will make an offering for you know like to have a mass said for this person so you know father daniel celebrate mass today he'll get that you know ten dollars put it in his gratis account and hand it away but i don't necessarily need to pay him extra money no because he's not really helping me we're just celebrating mass together right hey this is pastor land you know this is pastor land folks population one (laughs) 
<laughs> we don't need your kind around here. The uh, it's great to be in a house full of priests, though. I, I living in an institution yeah. again in Rome is can be a little bit defeating at times, and I just am like, thank you, Jesus. I can walk downstairs in sweats and grab a cup of coffee and make yep. a holy hour with these guys instead of like you got to have everything together and go down to the formal meal at this time and then you leave and it's just like bah. so it's, it's great tr- to be in a home and it's great to be living the common life together which is what we love and yeah. what the companions what are all need. about what need. we need honestly i uh, the difference you know because somebody said you must be living the dream right now because you have you know other priests in your house because i'm in this gargantuan rectory all by my lonesome and i said you know what the mark of that is when my alarm goes off, I don't hit snooze right. because I got to get up and make the coffee yep. for the other guys that right. are here. Right. And I don't do it because I'm like, grumble, grumble, whatever. It's like, no, we're we're getting off the ground together. Right. When I'm all by myself, sometimes I don't even make coffee Yeah. because I'm like, I don't want to drink a whole pot. It's too difficult, whatever. And I'll just get some extra sleep and I don't leave an ordered life and I'm not good alone. Yeah, I'm not good alone. It's a crazy shift because coming here, and this is funny because we're in our first week. You know, a month from now we'll probably be like, we hate each other, and this is the worst. Then I'll thing be ever. recording with rap. That's right, and be like, yeah, Father John, <laughs> we haven't heard about him in a while. Yeah, his body's buried somewhere under the Schloss Goebbels residence. I know exactly where I do it. <laughs> That's kind of scary because you're actually true. Skokie lagoons. Skokie lagoons. Yeah. So, um, but it's a it's been an interesting shift because it's like moving from solo priest life where you plug in with priests and catch up versus living like this kind of family life. And then you go out and everybody does their priest things and you have these meetings, but you're, it's just a, to, it, it flips everything on its head. You know what I mean? Cause it's so hard for priests to get together when you're trying to fit it into the bazillion other things you're trying to do. Right. Versus when you're living together and you're, and you're tracking together and you're moving together and you're biking together. Hey, yes. Monday. Yeah. Father Nathan and I, had an epic ride. It was great. Yep. We we got through. We got through. I was You uh, do what you can. It was pretty right? much on training wheels. Uh and John had to listen to what sounded like uh someone wheezing through like uh you know a wet a wet paper towel. It was, you know. <laughs> That's what it sounded like I was going up that hill. Just on that one hill up to Golden. On one hill, yeah, the one hill, which honestly it is one hill. And then John's like, "Okay, man, well done. Hey, let's bike up Lookout Mountain." I just <laughs> dream on. I'll see you at the bar. See you at the bar. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great to be biking together, and it's great to be sharing life together. It's 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 amazing. Actually, you know that's a good analogy, and you know maybe save it for another podcast. But uh, you go a lot further together right. than you do alone, and that I think that's true in so many more like aspects than just like biking or running or whatever. It's like, if you have somebody with you, man, like you're actually, you're not just concerned with your own needs, but the other person's as well. So, um, I biked with father John and then I had my first ride ever with father Brian Larkin. And, and I, I didn't totally embarrass myself. That's impressive. I embarrassed myself, but not totally. Yeah. So it's good. So you take these like solo activities like golfing and biking and these things and you realize it's better to just do it together, even if you're not as, because like when I'm in Rome, I'm way more efficient, so to speak, because there's not as many distractions, Mm -hmm. but I'd rather be distracted coming off of mass and talking to podcast listeners. The Ables will give them a good shout out at the end. Um, And these things. And so, yes, 
are we more productive and um, efficient, quote unquote, um, when we're not together? Well, yeah, you can do more things for more people, but that doesn't mean better fruitfulness. Right. I was praying about this this morning because the gospel was, uh, not to get on this tangent here, but the gospel was, um, by your fruits you shall know them. Mm. And I thought, yeah, but the tricky thing about that, because Mormons will say that to us, you know, by your fruits you should know. Look at this. Look at the Mormon church, you know. I've heard that from people. Ah. But, okay, we got to be careful whether you're Catholic, Mormon, Protestant, whatever. Fruitfulness is not measurable, necessarily. Mm-hmm. And the context of that in Matthew chapter 7 is around <laughs> false prophecy. So anyways, just, that's another podcast, but we'll, okay. we'll leave it there. Okay. That's right. Little Jack Johnson, we're better together. Oh, we're better together. Okay. I, don't, I can't. I'm. You called me out on the last one. I'm trying to kind of smooth it in, but we just got to eh, eh, kick it yeah, into reverse. Throw, in throw on the clutch. To the topic at hand. To the topic. That's what I always hear. And whenever. the title is. That's usually what I fast forward to until I get it. No, I know. I know. That's what Andrew, I listen, Andrew does. So, you know, I listen to your guys's when I do my laundry. Yeah. Um, so it's on kind of like a one to two week cycle of right. laundry, blacks, you know, et cetera. There you go. Um, and then I'll like set my phone up and then be folding laundry. And I'm like, I, I actually feel like I'm in communion with all the other people that are listening to the podcast. Right. And they have like ha- habits that they do. And I'm like, there's probably somebody else that's doing their laundry right now. And they're just listening to the podcast and saying to themselves, when are they going to get to the topic? That's right. That's <laughs> no, right. Just kidding. So the topic today is disarming beauty. Ooh, yes. Which, Caron. you Caron. Know, Julian Caron, which, you know, I thought about writing a book about your the tales of your mullet and calling it Disarming Beauty, but I thought that's more of an alarming beauty, I alarming. would say, because it's really, really out of control. That's another point, though. We're close, folks. Wigs for kids. If you know anybody who's looking for a curly-headed mullet, I'll happily make the donation <laughs> in about, you know, six weeks. Six weeks. <clears throat> his, the girl cuts his hair and is responsible for this beautiful gestalt is uh, getting married in the end of July. Yep. And she said, you have to have a mullet for my wedding. Right. You cannot cut it. So, yep. so we're going to see this glory from glory to glory through the end of July. And then, and then who knows what'll happen. And then it's probably going to stick around till December. <laughs> oh my gosh. When it hits your waist, that's what we call it. <laughs> that's right. That's, okay, that's when it's over. Agreed. Okay. We have an agreement. We've come to an agreement. Disarming beauty. Disarming Beauty was a book that Notre Dame Press just published, and it's a collection of essays by a guy named Julian Caron. And I was telling Mike Rapp about it. Julian Caron is the head, I don't know the words for these things, of community liberation, mm-hmm. right? the movement, which we love. I don't know if he was a student of Giussani, but the guy is fantastic. Caron mm-hmm. is just amazing to read. I highly recommend the book. John Gailey sent me a copy of it in Rome. Which is why I nice. got it, and I read it on the plane on the way back. What a good guy. Good guy. Smart guy, too. Because if you're part of the movement, and you know that I'm kind of disposed towards the Giassani thing, you send me the book, I podcast about it, next thing you know, we're promoting Corona, right. right? Hey, But I, I really recommend this book, um, because what it did for me was it re-immersed me back into the reality of what the Catholic faith is all about. And I'll kind of explain this as we go, because part of the problem is I don't want to give a book report and just throw a bunch of quotes at you, but I want to describe for you what what this did for me internally, right? Mm -hmm. So the backdrop is I live in Rome, right? Where there's thousands and thousands of priests and religious and everybody's studying basically, right? And we live in the world of ideas and especially as a dogma, dogmatic theologian, 
Dogma is the Greek word for teaching. You live in the realm of notions, ideas, such as the Trinity, right? Or the hypostatic union of Christ or grace, these things, right? But what happens is if you stay in that world too long, you lose touch with reality, right? Mm -hmm. And I've talked about this with Maspero telling me, break the system, break the system. And even Larkin, I found a a little card that Larkin wrote in that Dick Hayes book he gave us a couple Uh years ago. And it said, I hope that Hayes' writings helps to to crack your systems. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's exactly, you know me well. I create systems, I live in the world of ideas, and I like to do that because it's a lot easier. And everything makes perfect sense and is totally complete. Here's the problem with that. The faith and the way that God communicates himself in history is not a system of ideas, as we know, right? Yes. It's an event. It's historical. It's an encounter, which is itself, because Christ is the Logos, it is intellectual, and it is systematic in a sense. Like, dogmatic theology is a legitimate, real part of it. We're not jettisoning that. But the ontological, the formulation of ideas, conceptual ideas, is intimately connected with the historical and the factual existential reality of the faith. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. One of the problems with modern theology is that we separate the two. And theology is all about just abstract ideas, and it doesn't speak into or relate to reality, right, to the things that are. Well, we're doing that, and not just, if that's the case in terms of theology, we've been doing that in terms of metaphysics and epistemology for decades. Right, so the whole... Are Are they related? You know, the whole modern project is built on that. Yeah. Is it built on the... Even modern theology. Right. And so, so we, we appropriate this, and we're trying to engage this modern thing. But really, with the collapse of modernity um, in the last century, we really have to recognize the fact that um, we have a new demand upon us as Catholics to articulate how these truths, conceptual truths, are grounded in history and are speaking into history right now right? That they have everything, that the Trinity has absolutely everything to do. I did a wedding last week and my dad said, How do, what'd you do for homily prep? And I said, basically the same thing every, I do with every wedding homily. I start with them and my experience of them and describe something and, and try and get to the Trinity at some point. Yeah, That's basically every wedding homily I ever give. Um, and Pauline Sullivan, who's marrying a wonderful guy named Ian this weekend, now you know my secret. So somehow we'll start there, try and get to the Trinity and bring it back, bring it back full speed. Because I really are you think celebrating that, the wedding as well. I am. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, it's going to be glorious. These two are just fantastic. I, books not, not doing anything. Well, not that I know of right now. Maybe wow. that'll that'll get tricky on Saturday. So but uh, but and Father Greg's coming as well. I've known Pauline the longest though. I've known her That's since true. she was ten years old, and uh, it's amazing that they're getting married this weekend. So, but the point of that is to say, Caron helped me to get back to a couple of these phrases that are really really important. That the Christianity is fundamentally an event. And it's about the encounter, right? And this kind of language makes people nervous, but I saw a lot of similarities with Giassani, with John Henry Newman reading his Grammar of Ascent, and also with Balthazar's project. Um, I see these guys are all kind of doing the same thing, which is to say they're not okay with just this kind of nice little perfect system up here where we all live and we talk about all these ideas and we're losing touch with reality. Mm. And one of the frustrating things about living in Rome is that we all live in this fake little world because we're not in the parish. We're not, we're not really with people. So we debate over the stupidest hair-splitting issues when uh, gender is being completely re, you know, undefined, basically, yeah. in culture. And it's like, we have completely lost touch with the conversation. 
And I think that's part of the genius of Giassani. Giassani, in the 1950s, identified this pattern and what he called an educational emergency at a time in northern Italy when everybody was going to Mass and orthodoxy looked totally preserved. Mm -hmm. Giassani was able to see through that and to say, wait a second. And if you don't know about Giassani, he was a, a priest who had a, a doctorate, and uh, but then said, I want to go teach in high schools, and I want to make nature my laboratory and take kids out there. And so I just, I love his whole idea. But the fact that he was able to see through at a time when the church was still kind of holding up her triumphalistic posturing, we got our beautiful churches and everything's perfect and everybody's going to mass and everything's great. He saw the collapse that was about to come and has come and we're now in. And he saw that prophetically in a way that even now living in it, I feel like most of us priests and bishops are still in denial to mm-hmm. say, nope, everything's great. Let's just pump a bunch more money into this, keep throwing less and less priests into bigger and bigger rectories and everything's going to be great and everything's going to be fine. And it's like, this is insane. This is insane. We have to recognize the state of reality, right? And that's partially what I think Caron and Giassani are uh, are moving us to. So people are still, you would say that <clears throat> even people in the in the pews, not just theologically, but even on anthropological and metaphysical, emotional, and I don't know what else, educational, um, stance are being less and less removed from reality. Yeah. And so what Giussani and Caron are trying to do are bring people back into an incarnational relationality. That's right. That's exactly right. And uh, it's interesting, on the plane back from Rome, I watched the movie Inception again, mm-hmm. which I love, right? Yes. Um, and uh, I think bad epistemologies make the best movies. I just, you know... Yeah. Matrix back in the day. Sure. Inception is just so fun to watch. But it's a question about reality. Mm-hmm. What is reality? And it's it's a tragic story, if you know the movie, like with his wife and what happens because she loses, you lose reality, right? And so what I think Giussani and Corona are inviting us to is to say we need to, the educational emergency, and this is within the church, but it's within all of humanity, is to say we have to recover the depths of the Christian faith that can form people to experience Christ as an encounter, but give them a method whereby they can come to that and understand it as reality and then conform their lives to that reality. Instead of reducing the faith to a set of ideas and system and then thinking everything just evolves perfectly around this uh, and everything's great up here. Right? So let me give you a, a quote. The second part of the book is called An Event of Rebirth, and that was my favorite section. So if you do buy the book and you just run out of time and you get screaming kids and everything. Just I would read the second part. If that's, hmm. that's my favorite. But he says this. For many Christians, here is what qualifies the first reduction. So this is the reduction of Christianity. That Christianity is more notional than real, a set of concepts without reference to concrete life. But for a person who lives immersed in reality, who struggles within the daily drama, what interest can a Christianity reduce to a notional and doctrinal framework have? Question mark. Mm-hmm. This is one of the things that I see that we're doing with homilies, I wanted to give a podcast, maybe I still will, called uh, Make the Homily Great Again. Ouch. And one Ouch. of the concerns I have with that is if we're preaching notional Christianity alone, so we just get up and we talk about concepts, ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Which I love. I'm a dogmatist. Like I'm, I'm all about teachings, ideas. They're beautiful. It's profound. These truths have to resonate, but they have to 
insert themselves back into history. And for a lot of Christians, everything's just an idea, right? I was talking to all these seventh graders last night, preaching to them. How do I preach to them to get to move their hearts to encounter Christ, right? I can't just give them ideas. They're just checked out. And I mean, guys, teenage guys, I mean, it's like, that's like the ultimate. If you start to go down that path, this has nothing to do with reality. And I was sitting at a lunch table one time with a guy, um, another anonymous character, um, who said to me, Aristotle once wrote that um, only the wise man, only only a man who's old is able to use stories or ideas or these kind of, kind of um, concrete things in mm-hmm. his teaching. Therefore... I'm not going to use any stories, any humanity, any of this stuff when I preach. Yeah. And I wanted to say to him, you're going to be a terror, terror upon your people yeah. because it's going to be completely abstracted. It's going to have nothing to do with reality. Mm-hmm. But we're living in this time where it's either one of the two things. There's Everybody wants to go one of two extremes. Either you just reject the whole dogmatic project and everything's just about lovey-feely experience or you go to this opposite extreme where everything's abstracted, everything is notional, and nothing has to do with reality. And mm-hmm. we get up, we dress up, and we have these big, long liturgies, and we give these big, long homilies about nothing that has any significance um, or can even speak back into life. Mm. And that's what freaks me out. And I was very convicted by that myself. It's not just other guys. So notional and real Christianity. The the homilist has an, has a, the, is charged with the task of moving them mm. from a notional to a real living Christianity. This thing called the Trinity, this idea, which John Henry Newman has this great line, and I might have quoted it earlier, where he says, nobody prays to the Trinity. You pray to the Father and to the Son until you pray to persons, right? right. Trinity's an idea, right? Huh. Remember Gronsky always used to say that? You don't show up in heaven and there's this guy there and he's got a name tag that says God. Yeah. Hi, I'm God. God is not his name, right? It's an idea. It's a pointer. These are concepts, but we have to move we have to move back into the reality. And so somehow getting theology and getting the faith back to its original historic and event-based foundation, that's one of the projects we're facing now. And it's coming with a new urgency because the postmodern world we're living in is built on a reaction against the modern systems, right? The modern idealism, which is to say everything abstracted, get rid of the messiness of the concrete, it's and think of it like to take an example. Remember Dostoevsky, that great line from Ivan Karamazov, where he says, uh, "The more and more I love humanity, the the less and less I love the individual man." Hmm. Yeah, that's the notion. We love humanity. Yes, or even we love the church, <clears throat> yeah. or we love the priesthood. I met some people, some some religious recently, who love the priesthood, and a priest said to me, "They love the priesthood more than you do." I said, "They do love the priesthood more than I do, but they don't love priests more than I do." That's yeah. a difference. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's hard to love in the concrete. It's hard to live the faith in the concrete in the as an event, live it as an encounter. Yeah. So there was a line from Mother Mary Francis the other day that she's quoting somebody else, but she says, Charity is not just throwing open the windows uh and just saying, I love you, like mankind. Like their charity actually takes a form. And the form that it normally takes is the the scandal of the particularity of this brother. Mm-hmm. Or this parishioner, right. or my own self, which has its own like kind of universality, like you have an ocean of your own ego. But there's also particular things about yourself that I think God's actually leading you back to say, "How are you going to allow me to work in and through that, yeah, and not just around that?" Right. So, but as she says, it's Mother Mary Francis has a great phrase. She says that's an experience of salvific disillusionment. 
to where it's like it's just it's a lot easier to stay in your ideas and to keep everybody at bay and just live in your world of this is what it looks like to relate with God and these things, you know. But it's really destructive and it's really dangerous. So that's the first thing, notional and real Christianity. You want both. We want both. Well, and that, that was the other thing. That was the line that stuck with me with uh, uh, Monsignor Walsh. I finally met this mysterious character who I did had no I, I thought he was going to be old and frail, mm-hmm. you know, and he's actually a, a rather robust Brit. Yes. Um, and uh, he uh, he was talking about the, the project of Opus Dei. And one of the projects of Opus Dei, the work... Uh, is the the passing on of doctrine, and I was like, wow, that's that's really good to hear. You know, like we have all these different charisms in the church, and I'm like, I'm glad that somebody has made it a point to say we can't lose sight of the tradition, right? Because we're we're constantly reinventing, right? And you know, churches look, you know, nothing like churches like they used to. And so there has to be somebody there, not just that says, well, it says in this document or whatever, but like, here's the spirit that we need to maintain. Right. And I think that that's lived in persons a lot better than it is just, you know, I don't need a library. I don't need Google, you know, like to be able to preserve doctrine. Right. I actually need lived expressions of that. Exactly. And the project of communion liberation, if I understand it correctly, and of Giussani's vision and and a Caron's appropriation of that is to say we're talking about education here. We're talking about the education of humanity into the full flourishment. We're not talking about downplaying Catholic doctrine, right? We're talking about how do you educate someone mm-hmm. in doctrine? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you allow these truths to transform their experience of Christ? That's what we're we're talking about level of method here. We're not yeah. talking about the level of content. And the reason why people are so gun shy is because there's been this this flattening of the Catholic mind, you know, to say, and then so we just kind of robust with our systems, and it's like, nah, that's not the answer. We got to rethink how we instruct and how we teach. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, my dad and I were talking about. Maybe I'm thinking about homilies today. This this topic has not really been well prepared, but this is going in the in the way of kind of um, kind of talking about homiletic training. But my dad and I were talking about it now that he's Deacon Daryl. And um, I said, Dad, don't presume that they care when you get up to preach, because they probably don't. And one of part of the human crisis that um, Caron is identifying, he calls it a mysterious lethargy and an inv- invincible boredom hmm. that's in the hearts of postmodern man right lethargy now. Lethargy and invincible Mysterious boredom. lethargy and an invincible boredom. True. And I read that phrase and I was like, that's it. That's it. And then he quotes Giussani in saying, nothing is so incredible as an answer to an unasked question. So our parishes are full of either people who have assented to notions of the faith but have struggled to bring that into daily life, into experience, appropriating into their human existence. And then a lot of them are, and ourselves included, this caught up in this mysterious lethargy and invincible boredom, right? Trying to move them out of that. And if you're, if you're just hammering them with answers without evoking the questions... What are we doing, right? So we're no one of the one of the real marks of postmodern man. We're asked; they're not asking the questions anymore, and we keep hammering the answers. And that's what I love about Giussani and Caron is they're saying, no, 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 we have to, we have to begin by evoking the questions again, because only then will the answers become even remotely comprehensible, mm-hmm. right? 
The faith, the, the Catholic faith is a response to a question right now that nobody's asking. And that's why it just looks like, well, that's cute. You guys did that, that you're a priest and, uh, or that you're Catholic, right? Yeah. So this is for the homeless. This is also for the people in the world, right? Uh, your friends at work, your friends, your family members. I mean, um, the questions have to be asked. And it's a lot harder to kind of patiently bring about the questions through dialogue, through friendship, instead of just hammering people with the answers. So, well, that's that can be increasingly difficult the more uh, if we, the more we move away from incarnation and you know nature, like nature, not just like being close to trees and bushes and you know panda bears or whatever, but like our human nature, we're actually reprogramming ourselves genetically, uh, gynecologically. Um, I don't know, like notionally, like people are being re-educated in, in schools, like to think something very different than perhaps what they grew up in. Like if you asked a kid, like, is that a tree outside? He'd be like, yeah, that's a tree. Like I can climb it. Like I can, you know, go up to it or whatever. And they're like, no, you're just thinking that's a tree. And yeah, we're not necessarily doing that particular thing in schools, but we're all we are presenting certain ideas about reality that are very different uh than than the worldview that that people grew up in as toddlers or as uh or as you know like even you know college students like way back when and then now all of a sudden you people are asking these questions or having the answers and it's like nothing's rooted in reality anymore right so how I mean, if he's getting him back to the question, how do you present uh, questions or elicit questions about reality that uh, to people that in a way already have the answers? Like they already have answers. They're not just asking questions. They already they either have answers or they're not even satisfied with the question. See, I don't think they have the answers. I think that you settle into ideologies. Or into just kind of medic. I think in Europe it's more ideological. Here, the kind of the run-of-the-mill, typical American. It's it. We're pretty pragmatic people, you know. Um, there are major ideological projects at the level of the university, at the level of media that are yeah. being that right. are being that are transforming people. I mean, if you think about just since we were in seminary, how kind of normative it's become to just accept the complete undefining of marriage. I mean, look at the advancement that's happening. Yeah. Gay Pride Parade in downtown Denver on the day of my dad's ordination. I was like, this is a fascinating contrast between the thousands that are outside kind of promoting this quote-unquote liberation and then this small flock in the cathedral doing this kind of archaic ancient practice, so to speak, in the eyes of the world, yeah. right? That's the world we're living in. So theology, everything, it, we cannot do that apart from lived practical experience and and bringing this down into i think this is the project of the companions because this is the part of the project of friendship and this brings me to my third point unless you had another no you got that look in your face like okay andrea polito was giving me the business about you're too you're getting too abstract as he's you know some of them are getting a bit and i said well when were you listening she's like well i was doing my laundry and like texting my dad and uh you know praying the office and while you're listening to the podcast i was like that's why you got to focus you know when we're talking about so here's a uh, a third point so number one notional and real notional and real 
two, uh, mysterious lethargy and evoking the question. I would say evoking the question and invincible, you, invincible how break, boredom. How do you break through the lethargy and boredom? Right. And I think you have to get them to ask the question themselves. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. That's it, that's Socratic. It is. I mean, I think actually Giussani is in a way like, you know, a modern day Socrates. Yeah. Where, where he he just proposes certain things and he's like, if you if you believe this, what does that lead to? And then it's like, well, I never really thought about that. I don't even really I don't even really question my own existence. I don't right. even really question like how I perceive the church or right. whatever. You know right. What and that moves to the third point, which is to say the the work of moving beyond this educational emergency that we're in is the work of broadening reason broadening reason so expanding and this is a big thing for ratzinger as well if you read pope benedict uh, amazing amazing uh writings on the regensburg speech the very famous one where uh muslims in europe went crazy and uh, but the if you read it it's one of the most magnificent things i think i've read in the last decade um so go back to the regensburg address but it's all about the expanding of reason so that it can not just be reduced to this kind of systematic, rational thing, but it, it's it's an all-encompassing reason that um, allows and works with um, faith, the concept of belief, but also of experience, you know. But one of the things I liked about this work of broadening reason, getting people expanding their understanding of reason, reasonableness, is uh, the role of friendship in that. Because he writes this, he says, it is friendship as a real fact that forces the two of them to broaden their reason because each one wants to identify with his friend to learn the other's way of perceiving to discover the other beyond all stereotypes. So what I like about that is the work of broadening your reason is not something that can happen just on your own. You can't just sit around and say, okay, I'm going to expand my reason today. It has to happen in the context of communion, friendship, dialogue. Mm -hmm. Classic example of that, this morning, Father Daniel Eustrom and I are sitting on the... uh, on the porch there, had a beautiful conversation about priestly life. And in particular, we were talking about how do priests wait, relate well with women, right? What does that look like? Which is a, a very interesting question, and uh, which there's a lot of different kind of ways that you can apply these principles. But we talk about that pretty regularly because we see that women have, um, they contribute something uniquely to the life of a priest, but also we're celibate men. And this is something that needs to be recognized and lived out in an authentic and healthy way. So how do you balance that? Anyways, I won't go into the details on that, but just to say, if I wasn't in conversation with him... You'd have your own ideas. I'd have my own ideas. And I'd say, this is the way you do it. This is the way everybody should do it. This is boom. And you just right. become... Right. Um, you become just kind of hardened in your own mm-hmm. stereotypes, as he says. Here. I had I had a conversation like that the other day. I was in a seminar, and somebody said, well, why doesn't everybody do why doesn't everybody do it this way? You know? And I, and I, I kind of said to the guy, this is a way it's not the way. Right. Because what he was saying was, I've come to experience this as this is, this is the right way to do it. And I'm like, but, but you can't just appropriate somebody else's system. You have to actually live it yourself. And, and especially when it comes to relationships and friendship and, um, you know, something as intimate as uh, priestly life, it's like, well, uh, that may be the way one person does it, and they may be on to something, honestly. Um, but you have to, yeah, that's that's to be tested, right? You know, you almost you almost give up the 
you almost give up if you just accept their answer. You have to do it yourself, you know. I thought it was fun, like, uh, in high school, Mr. Steers, uh, he didn't let us use calculators at all. You weren't allowed to use calculators on the test. You could use it on your homework or whatever, but you weren't allowed to do that because the whole point was you have to see how this works yourself, and you can't just punch numbers into a into a you know calculator and then have it figure it out for you. You have to do it yourself, and you see the labor that goes into that, but then at some point, you, you have this aha moment of, I know how this works. I, I can see it, you know, and that happens through education as opposed to why do I need to know how to do that? Somebody else can do it for me. Right. Somebody else figured this out. Somebody else told me how to live. Somebody else told me, you know, the God is three persons or whatever. So, yeah. And that's the, uh, that's the, that's the task is to say, we have to trust humanity again. We have to trust human freedom again. We really have to take human freedom more seriously, I think. Um, and that is to say, we have to propose constantly. We have to be very creative about how we're proposing this to get them to have a real encounter, a real, the, the event that you and I both had, have had moments in our life where Christ, it, it was an event and an encounter with, with Jesus Christ. And that becomes the foundation of our life, right? And we don't look for that. This ties into our last podcast. You don't need that all the time. I don't need this kind of medicating good feelings mm-hmm. because this event that happened for me uh, 16 years ago in about two weeks, that's, that's, I'm still fascinated by the, the fact that that happened, right? Yeah. And we have to create the circumstances and, and the, the opportunity again where people can be educated in Christ with his proposal of what it means to be a human being through a real encounter and a real event. And that's what I love about the movement. But like you're saying, we, can't, we have to be careful not to absolutize particulars. Only Christ is the way. Community liberation is not the way. The companions of Christ are not the way, mm-hmm. right? Opus Dei is not the way. Right. These are expressions of the way, Jesus Christ, which is to say the event of God's saving love and his presence, which is now being communicated through history and is completely transforming our experience. And which was, ex- which was experienced through, through relation. Like he becomes flesh so as to enter into dialogue, to enter into like... Human experience, mm-hmm. community, friendship, enemies, in a way, ignorance, you know, like, I don't know, one could say that about Christ, but that people, people were, they just didn't know, you know, like, how long must I bear with this generation? So, anyways. The uh, final thing I'll say here is... Final um, thought, Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer, you always say that. The If you, if you remove relation from the, the work of educating someone into reality, you end up in nihilism. Things can collapse. People's faith can collapse very quickly if that relation, that relational dimension is not at the very heart of it. Because like we're saying, the only thing that broadens, broadens reason is being in relation, right? And so often we think we're just these autonomous things walking around, these res cogitans, right, from Descartes. We're thinking things completely separated from everything. And then I enter into relationship with you, but it's like, no, relationship is inherent to the existential structure of my being right now, right? Mm-hmm. This is not accidental, right? And Aristotle I kind of had it as an accidental thing. It's really not. It's really at the heart of everything. And because of and the incarnation and the trinity are the two things that kind of really bring that to light for us. So you, you said you're saying that Aristotle says that relation is an accidental, accidental yeah, of property. being. Yeah, but that's a whole other topic. 
talk to Susan Selden right about it. That's interesting because I thought Norris Clark said that re- relationality is is part of is part of being. It is for the for the in the Christian understanding of it, but not strictly speaking oh, okay. in Aristotle's. Yeah, interesting. He did the best he could. Right? He did the pretty noble good. pagan. The noble pagan. So, anyways, we got to recover reality. We do it through humanity, and we do it through relationship. So we got to get back into relationship so that we can broaden our reason and homilists start moving them to a real experience of Christ and not just a notional one. Got Amen. It. Amen. Bastikos. The shout out. All right, so I went to Benedictine College to do my uh, retreat uh, with Father Nick Blaha. Um, I was at the Benedictine Monastery, which there is a wonderful monk there by the name of Father Meinrad. Hmm. Uh, I hope you have a drink with him someday. I've met him. Oh, he was a He delight. came up to our seminary in, De- in oh, St. Paul way back in the day. He was telling stories about him and Albacete. I was oh. dying. Oh, I, I just, I love that guy. Uh, but uh, Father Meinrad, uh, I also met uh, a few other monks up there. Um, Father... What's the name of the... Levin. Levin. Father Levin. Levin. Yep, Father Levin. Father <laughs> Levin. And Father Jay. Um, oh, it's that Father Jay. Former nice. Former companion. Yep. So, uh, anyways, uh, so I'm, I'm doing my retreat, whatever, trying to, you know, lay low. I'm out overlooking the river, um, and all of a sudden this person, like, walks up to me and says, uh, hey, uh, are you Father Nathan by chance? And I go, Yeah. And he's like, oh, man, I listened to your podcast and, uh, you know, really cool to meet you. He saw me in the library and the guy was kind of looking at me and I thought he was kind of like scoping me out like you're really not supposed to be in here. You look like a vagrant. Um, But instead he was looking at me like, I think I know that guy. So uh, Joseph from Benedictine College. And then I was doing my laundry and uh, I... I, I used your line. I totally forgot about that. So remember your line from Crestone with the Jesuits? Uh, you know? Yeah. So I said, uh, you know, currently I'm on retreat at, at Benedictine College, right. which is true. But she associated that with the priests of Kansas City. But I'm a priest of Denver. But they were they, the priests of Kansas City were there. So then I could do my laundry. Right. Anyways, so uh, she's like, oh, yeah, we'll help you out. You know, so I, I this girl, you know, gave me a card, whatever. Well, I was returning the card and the girl was gone. And this other girl was there. And I said, uh, I need to return this card and the door's locked or whatever. And she goes, uh, man, are you, uh, do you do a podcast? And I was like, what? And she's like, are you on some kind of podcast? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, oh my gosh. Like I I was listening and you got me in really big trouble because speaking of father Lavin, father Levin, father Levin has apparently been telling, uh, Brianna, uh, to read Kristen Lavin's daughter. Yes. For like the last four years, and she never did it. And then your podcast came out, and so she started reading it. And uh, she actually said to him, "Yeah, I started reading Kristen Lavin's daughter." And he's like, "Did you start reading that because of the podcast?" And she's like, "Yeah." So, anyways, you got her in trouble. So she's she's getting married. Um, so uh, I think by now it's Matthew and Brianna Rich. Okay. Uh, she's originally from Albert Quercre. Albert Quercre. Uh, and um, uh, she went to. <laughs> Benedictine, and now she's moving up to Lincoln with her husband. Um, and um, so, yeah, met those two. It's really cool. Nice. I got an email from Laura Gifford. Remember yeah. Laura Gifford? Oh, yeah. Kentucky. She says, Hey, Padre, I was at a Pentecost party last week in Perrysburg, Ohio, and met Drew Seward, a neophyte and faithful listener to Catholic Stuff You Should Know. Huh. 
he said uh, they were talking about Colorado, and he Drew said, "Isn't that where the Catholic stuff guys are from?" And then Laura told him what losers we actually are. Yep. So, anyways, to Drew, thanks, Laura. Thanks for listening, and yeah, thanks for nothing, Laura. Um, lastly, um, a couple of students, Emily Moyer and Anne Lacoco. I know I gave a shout out to your sister, and you're very upset about it. So now you get your own official shout out. Here it is. Once it's over. Uh, but Emily Moyer also, thanks for listening. And all the uh, Bernardi kids, we miss you. I got to see uh, Eric Brombeck last night up at uh, Wojtyla. I miss these kids. They they were like the delight and the joy of oh, yeah, my the, little parish last uh, spring. The so. Ecclesiola. And then lastly, these two beauties on my left here that we owe thanks to. Yes. Oh, that's right. As the Ables. Na- the Ables. The Enablers, as Father Nathan said. Corn whiskey from Baltimore. This looks really good. Baltimore oak-aged corn whiskey. And then this beautiful bottle of Jefferson's Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. Very small batch. This will go to good use. That's right. Both of them will. To priests who need it. I need and, it. And I want to apologize to your family for the fact that Father Nathan just loaded your kids up with candy and sugar for your eight-hour drive That's today. That's true. Yeah, I was. I always like bartering with people. You know, we always get gifts in the podcast, and sometimes you know there's a little overflow. People are very generous or whatever, so I'll trade them. You know, and I'll be like, here, I'll give you some of these if you'll give me that. Oh, so, there you go. Um, but uh, I have Rebecca's card. She is floral design weddings and events by appointment in so, Maryland. In Maryland, uh, Frederick, Maryland. Frederick. Well, so yeah, their kids were hilarious. Hilarious, and I. I was doing this thing. We used to do this game with my little brothers called Slice It. We end everything in it in our family, like uh, when we're doing weird stuff, you know, like pinch it, poke it, you know, like bop it, you know. Um, So we do this game called Slice It. So, like, you, like, slice the arm, and then you have to lose the arm, and then you have to fight the person, whatever. So then this girl picked up immediately, and she just goes, double slice it. And she, like, slice, double, like, or no, super slice. And she, like cut both and I was like that's it you've mastered the game you just won yeah that's smart of it well that was great to meet them this morning and thank you again we're we're so grateful of the uh, generosity of so many people that's right we really so, enjoy so Father John will be around uh, daily masses till kind of September-ish yep mm-hmm. uh, but you know it's hit or miss and he'll be gone and I'll be gone but uh, you we know do. you're always you're always welcome Saint Father John Michael Father Mike Rapp will be at probably Lords to yeah, come celebrate. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to see him, go to Our Lady of Lords. Uh, yeah. And Father Olo still still rocking it at Holy Protection, so you can always catch him there. That's right. And you can always catch us at CatholicStuffPodcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook. Read Disarming Beauty. Read I'm Disarming sorry, Beauty. That was kind of a sloppy presentation today, but That's good. Uh, we got we got a couple of the gems. Amen. That's it? You're not going to say goodbye? Goodbye. Okay. Bye.